Alicia, I think I think you need to calm down. I think you need to calm down. I think you need to calm down because it is season three of, of Trashy, Trashy Divorces. Divorces. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. For a new trash-filled season we are good little podcast about bad relationships. Hell yeah. We are celebrating Pride this week. Happy Pride, everyone. We sure are. Our little song this week, the feel-good oh gay anthem everyone needs for the summertime. You, you need, need to, to calm, calm down. down. Taylor Swift, thank you for this gift. We have embraced it whole whole bodily, I don't know, whatever. Very loudly mm-hmm. in our home with impromptu dance parties. Yes. Frequent. It's Frequent, been amazing. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. You should see the moves on our cat. Seriously. It's a, it's a whole dance jam around here. I do think the cats like the song, though. Oh, the so cats I'm love really, the song. Really into Come it. on. All right. You met our cats? I have. <laughs> I'd like to meet Taylor Swift cats. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Aww. No kidding. Anyway. Anyway. This is not a podcast about Taylor Swift's cats, mm-hmm. although I'm sure that podcast probably does exist. Dude. I don't know. Future idea. Seriously. Post-it note that. So this week, Pride Week. It's a big deal. Last week, June, Stacy, mm-hmm. you're covering somebody this week who never calmed down. Never calmed down. Never going to calm down. His name is Elton John. His uh. name is Sir Elton John, who in the 80s, in a poorly thought out and probably cocaine induced bit of self-delusion, courted and then married a woman, uh, which he's had a lot of guilt about for all the rest of his years. It's a really good um, story. It's an interesting story. Like, poor guy. I mean, times are better now, but geez, that poor woman like really went through it. So you've got another super creative creator with a really different sort of story. Well, they're different. Maybe you're like, Elizabeth Gilbert, what the hell does she have to do with trashy divorces? She's had a few. Liz Gilbert, to me, is an incredible teacher. My story this week is just a message of love is love is love is love. It doesn't matter who you love. Love yourself. Love who you love. It's all good. Yep. There were a little bit of a little bit of tearage. I mean, it wouldn't be uh, trashy divorces without a little bit of tearage. Oh, it's going to be trashy divorces in our next episode because we're. I'm coming back with anger. I'm done with all this tear nonsense for cool. a week. I'm excited. When we return, yes, Sunday, July 7th. Next week, we're off. We are taking next week off as a matter of self-care. We love you. I'm going to get out all the tears, build up all the anger. Coming back to you Sunday, July 7th. Mm -hmm. With that, though, next week, if you're like, oh, man, I really miss those crazy girls on Trashy Divorces, go on over to Patreon. If you're jonesing, we can hook you up. Yup. So just a little bit more business before we begin the show. Y'all, last week I was like, hey, do you think we can get up to 100 Patreon people in a week? We sure damn near close enough. We're at 98. We had 12 new Patreon peeps join us this week for all the fun that's happening over there. Do you want to start our magic mirror? I will start our magic mirror. Just because you wanted to call this name because it was amazing. I love it. Brina, first of her name. Caroline, Daniela, Olivia, Sarah, Ariel, Jessica, Carolyn, Diamond, Nicole, Jana, and Jazz. Thank you so much to each of you for joining our little for real crazy quirky awesome community over there. And hold up, you know what's even cooler? What's up? Jen S, Lauren and Jessica leveled up this week on Patreon and kind of took a look at what we're doing at the different levels and decided 
hey, I'm going to throw a few more bucks your way to get all the bonus stuff. There's a lot. We do a lot of stuff over there because like all of these stories have these weird tangents. So much fun. And just side rabbit holes that we continually fall down that just are we would have a five hour long podcast if we tried to include all of that. And uh, we just put the other five hours on Patreon. Basically. Basically. Yeah. So Jen, S, Lauren, Jessica, y'all are going to get some a, a little extra prize when we mail our Patreon goodies out tomorrow. So stay tuned for that. Let's talk about this week. You actually did your bonus divorce this week on Patreon. Who did you cover? Um, I covered Kim Davis, who you may recall from such episodes as it's 2015 and the Supreme Court has just legalized gay marriage, but a dour looking county clerk in Kentucky is refusing to issue marriage licenses that Kim Davis, her life was so, her life is so trashy. And she, her moral righteousness was just such a flimsy veneer papered over a life of true garbage peddling. Righteous Stacy is a lot of fun. That was fun to listen to. <laughs> I've got my bonus divorce coming overnight on June 28th and June 29th. And as it's the 50th anniversary of a particular event that happened overnight, it won't take you too far to maybe guess what I'm in the process of writing. Also... Probably coming out Sunday, Monday. Trashy Tutors, our next installment of that. We're going a little bit further back than Tutor Error, but I could not. Basically, it's like six of you have asked for her. This is true. I don't know how. Eleanor of Aquitaine, yep. 12th century badass, became such a hot topic. Yeah. But look for that on Monday, y'all. Multiple emails about Lit. this. So Lit. That will so be on Patreon. Good. So yeah, like once again, like we are taking next week off because we need a break and we're terrible at reading calendars. But we will be back <laughs> Sunday, July 7th with brand new episodes. Brand and, new trash. And in the meantime, we will be posting stuff to Patreon as per our schedule. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Bonus divorces, mm-hmm. trashy tutors, and all the tea. Trashy tidbits. Oh, my. So, Alicia, are you ready to do this episode pride style? I got on my rainbow shirt. I got on my glitter tiara. Let's take the trash out. Let's pride style. take the trash out. Go, go, go. And love, love, love. Oh, Stacy. Oh, Alicia. This week, you have a divorce that I may be a mystery to some. I don't know. You know, we could not do Pride Month episodes without bringing up one of the one of the weirder decisions that Elton John ever made, which was to marry a wife in 1984. It, it was a little odd. It was a little bit of a shock. Yeah, and we haven't seen Rocket Man yet, but apparently it, this is in the story there. It's just a weird incident in the life of Elton John that has, I think, caused him a great deal of pain, but I think caused her a lot more. How about I just bust right into it? Tell us a story. Cool, cool. All right. So I don't know how much time I need to spend introducing one of genuinely the most famous people alive. That's for sure. Sir Elton John. But, you know, many people have probably forgotten that for a brief period in the 1980s, Elton John had a wife. Sure did. Kind of a shocker was legal and everything. So here's the story of how that didn't work out 
It's the Pride Month Trashy Divorce of Elton John, y'all. This is amazing. Go, go, go. So uh, Elton, I think most people know, was born Reginald Kenneth Dwight, 25 March 1947. He's an Aries in the community of Penner Middlesex, which is like a northwestern London borough. Okay. Almost said bureau. Also, their rugby team merged. There were two rugby teams that merged. So they are the Penner and Grammarians RFC. Nice. Go team. Go team. Okay. Uh, very we wish early. you luck in your sports thing. <laughs> Whatever that may be. He very early uh, displayed significant musical talent. And I think he was picking out songs on his grandmother's piano like as a toddler. Oh, wow. It's like, like a child prodigy yeah, with music. Yeah. They'd, they'd play records. And I think he'd go over to the piano and start tinking out the the uh, the. The melody, the, the melody chords. The, there you go. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for the words about music. I, they just all left I my I got head. you, boo. I got you. <laughs> okay. By the time he was seven, little Reggie slash Elton, uh, his parents had him in formal piano training. And apparently he would occasionally sizzle up school functions by busting into Jerry Lee Lewis on the piano, I'm sure. Oh, my. I'm sure the administrators were endeared. Loving that. So at 11... He wins a scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music. Oh, wow. He blew away the instructors there and was in a pro, like a Saturday program sure. until he was 16. He said he was kind of an ambivalent student, though, and he said later, I was one of those children who could just about get away without practicing and still pass. So he didn't have a lot of motivation to impress because, like, he, again, child prodigy. As a 14-year-old, he probably wanted to do other things with his Saturdays. <laughs> In London. <laughs> okay. His mom was pretty supportive of his musical interests. His dad, though, was a Royal Air Force uh, World War II veteran. Like, oh. had a different view. Like, he apparently encouraged him to go into banking rather than Can you imagine music? Elton John is your banker. I need to come talk to you about a home improvement loan, right. Mr. John. Right. <laughs> Reginald. Home equity. Can Can we HELOC this thing? Okay. So, yeah, you can imagine, like, there was a little, a little, little, little tension. A little tension. Yeah. Okay, okay. I guess, good news, bad news, uh, around the time he's 14, his parents' marriage blows up anyway. Oh. So they divorce, and mom is now his primary caregiver. Uh, anyway, oh, great. Who's, gives him a little bit more support. A little bit more support. She also remarries this dude named Fred, who is apparently super cool. I think he was a painter. Nice. Um, Young Reggie slash Elton, his affectionate nickname for Fred was uh, Durf, which is Fred backwards. Like, Aww. it just seems like they had a they bonded really well. And nice. So again, super supportive. And so when he's like fifteen, mom and stepdad they go to their local pub and they're like, "Hey, you know, our kid's great on the piano. Can he work here on weekends?" And they let him. <laughs> so, like, Not even after last call, like Shania Twain. Yeah, you got a baby <laughs> in a bar. <laughs> Anyway, less of a baby. Around this time, he starts wearing horn-rimmed eyeglasses. Oh, yeah. Not because he has vision problems, but because he wants to look more like Buddy Holly. Uh, Of course. As we know, eyewear will become a thing in the life of Elton John. I would be disappointed if it didn't. (laughs) He and some friends form a band in the early 60s. This ends up being like the backing band for American touring artists like the Isley Brothers and Patti LaBelle. Like... It wasn't going to take off and be its own thing. He's also composing. So when he sees an ad looking for songwriters in the New Musical Express, he responds to it, goes to talk to him. 
And they basically hand him an envelope full of lyrics that had been written by the one other person who responded to the ad. And that person's name was Uh -uh. Bernie Toppin. Yes! Yes! So, um, Isn't that amazing? Here's just an envelope of words from this guy named Bernie. Yeah, we had this other guy in. He does lyrics. We love that you can compose. Like, go... Do uh, something with this. Take these and go compose and then send them to him and we'll see how it goes. So obviously these two end up as the staff songwriters. Get Um, back, honky cat. Yeah. That is crazy. At DJM Records in London. So yeah, this is 68. He's now going by Alton John informally. He does eventually change his name in 72. Trying on that name? Yeah. See how it feels? Yeah. In 1972, he legally becomes Elton Hercules John. Oh, my. Really? <laughs> also started using drugs by that point. so <laughs> Makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. Okay. So he and Bernie are, you know, going to work every day and writing songs that, you know, other people in the DJM record label universe sure. are, are performing. This is what their creative process looked like. I find this so exciting. Bernie would just like sit down and write words for one hour. He would just sit down and like vomit words on pages for an hour. And then he would hand the stack of paper over to Elton, who would sit down at the piano. Thanks, mate. For about half an hour. Why? And just start banging out music. And any of those pages that didn't sort of immediately spark music joy he just threw he just threw out like yeah i guess that's not it and like moved on to the next one and they that was their process it was this this like super fast see what catches yeah yeah i mean these are these are two young people really like i don't know like stuff sparks so easily when you're that age you know 18 19 and they just yeah went for it really Really started making cool that stuff. That is not the creative process of tragedy divorces no, at all. No, <laughs> no, Okay, so this was all for artists on the DJM label. Some of their songs did kind of make a dent across the pond, although I was not familiar with any of them, so I did not write down their titles. I believe your favorite Wikipedia page can help you out if you're curious. After a year or so of doing this, people were like, you guys have a lot more talent than these songs indicate and you should really be writing like more complicated material that Elton can perform. And so they did. And the culmination of that was Elton John's 1969 debut album, Empty Sky. No, Just get ready because he may not have been the greatest student in the world, but he is a fucking hard worker. So in 1970, Elton John is released This had the pair's first hit with your song going to number seven in the UK and number eight in the US. Good song. The album went to number five in the UK, number four in the US. Wow. He goes to Los Angeles for his first American show. At the Troubadour. The Troubadour. And at the time, I mean, this is one of your favorite eras and places. August 1970. He lit So yeah, Carol King, James Taylor, like the, the universe of... Of music Steve that you Martin love. at the Hootenanny nights on Monday. Like yeah. this is Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, the Eagles before they were the Eat like when they were Long Branch Penny Whistle. Like yeah. it is just it is the happening spot. Yeah. So this, you know, crazy flamboyant Englishman with a piano doing like playing like they've never seen anybody play like ever. Knock their glasses off. <laughs> ha, see what Speaking I did there. Of eyewear. 
Yeah, so this gets a, his show gets a glowing review in the LA Times that begins, Rejoice, rock music, which has been going through a rather uneventful period lately, has a new star. He's Elton John, a 23-year-old Englishman whose United States debut Tuesday night at the Troubadour was, in almost every way, magnificent. Wow. This was written by Robert Hilburn. He also mentioned that, I guess this show was highly anticipated. The audience included one of the largest local gatherings of rock writers in months. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, so I guess... It was a big deal. I guess it was a big deal, yeah. And he didn't disappoint in that Did, show. Mm-mm. So Elton works continuously during the next several years, landing hit singles, uh, Levon and Tiny Dancer. Holy Aww. shit. And so, fun story, because like, I didn't... I haven't thought about this. Tiny Dancer, like, it's it's his partner who writes the lyrics sure bernie's the so bernie's the word guy tiny dancer is about the woman who became bernie's wife i you know for like really? growing up i always I, I thought tiny dancer actually was about this woman that he ended up marrying i think tony danza thinks it's about him <laughs> <laughs> tony danza I didn't see that one coming that was funny tony danza may not be wrong but no i always thought tiny dancer was about the woman who became elton john's wife but in fact it's Bernie's Bernie. wife. Yeah, that's huh. it was so weird to realize that. Uh, anyway, okay, so that's from the, the things re- trashy divorces will teach you. Right, that's from the record Madman Across the Water. Oh, that was a good album. He finally scores his first US number 1 album with Honky Chateau in 72. This becomes the first of seven consecutive number 1 US albums. Seven? It is the the success that Elton John experiences in the early 70s is amazing and unprecedented captain fantastic sure and just i i just want to make sure we're all feeling like i obviously we can't include the music because you know we're broke but we don't have that kind of budget but this includes honky cat and rocket man off of honky chateau 1973 saw goodbye yellow brick road which Uh. i know right oh my god which obviously included goodbye yellow brick road also benny and the jets which was my favorite song as when I was one, because, I mean, 1972, I was born. So, right. Carol King Tapestry, sure. the album of 72. Sure. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, album of 73. I'm sure my parents were not at all concerned about me when with I would the, go on my... With the pill-popping anthem? Elton dance costume jam to... Benny and the Jets. Yeah. It also had Candle in the Wind. It's good. It's good album. Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. Sure like, damn is. Good Lord. Like, just... It was uh, it was a little bit surprising to realize just like how condensed because again this is over the period of like five years he turns out just this massive array of epic epics just world it, on fire remarkable seventy four caribou comes out this has the bitches back and don't let the sun go down on me ah oh, that's a good song there was a greatest hits album there were collaborations with John Lennon and Pete Townsend. The version of Pinball Wizard used in the film Tommy. Pinball Wizard. Yeah, like, he is just working his ass off. Like, just, he's everywhere. In 1975, he releases Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. This album debuted at number one. Okay, fun fact. (laughs) This is the first time an album has ever debuted on the American charts at number one. Really? This has just never happened before. No way. So, Elton John. another Another thing he did first. Next up is Rock of the Westies. This also debuts at number one. And it was the first time two successive albums by any artist had debuted at number one. Like, 
He's playing to massive crowds. He's hosting multi-night runs at Madison Square Gardens, Dodger Stadium, Wembley Arena. Just peak Elton John. Like, and and <laughs> in so many like in terms of the the quality of the work he's producing, his schedule. It's just it, it is a it's a high wire act, and he is he is doing it amazingly well. Except balancing on the line. Except yeah. he's balancing on the line. So back in 1970. So he's kind of just getting just getting started. He meets John Reed, who became his manager for the next three decades. But there was more to the story. And this was apparently well known in music circles. But the two of them lived together and were romantic partners for oh. five years. Okay. So basically during this period of of like just incredible success, he and John Reed were were partners in kind of all ter- all ways of all senses of the term. Interestingly, Reed was also Queen's manager, and he is apparently, we again have not seen Rocket Man yet or Bohemian Rhapsody, but he's portrayed in both films. <laughs> like, just like, what a, an interesting character with an interesting life. The other thing that he did, though, is uh, that he introduced Elton John to cocaine uh, oh, to help him yikes. get past his shyness. Nope. Nope. And, and presumably, because they're, you know, when you're on a creative jag you're in the studio until whenever so lots of reasons for some some little upper action there anyway it's very bad so it was reed who introduced elton john to cocaine in the early 70s and he grew more and more out of control with his addictions over the next decade and a half yeah so a pride month not fun fact So people of a certain age will remember a young man named Ryan White. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, I think, a uh, in Indiana. He was he was a kid. I mean, kid. He had hemophilia, and at the time, I guess to this day, like there were, what is it, factor eight? Anyway, he was receiving treatments that caused him to become infected with HIV, mm-hmm. and his, his little crappy town flipped out. Like they wouldn't let him go to school. They wouldn't like. It was brutal. It was and pretty bad. Yeah, this was in the mid '80s, and so Elton John stepped in and I think helped fund uh, his family moving to Indianapolis. Really? Or, yeah, like getting to a better place where. Oh uh, wow! The, the they really the town flipped out. Like it was super like. It was horrible. I, I remember it when I was, was a kid. It was a pretty terrible story. It was Elton's friendship with Ryan White and his family in the 80s until his death in 1990 that ultimately prodded him to get sober. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. And he has been sober for basically 30 years now. He has said, though, he has just this like classically addictive personality. So like... he needs to go and buy a pair of shoes. No, no. He's buying five pairs of shoes. Like... Oh, we need to replace the family car? No, we're getting three or like... Pushing it to the limit. Oh, I should play a show? No, I should plan a tour. (laughs) It's just, he, yes, he amps everything up. He can't help himself. That's how he is. So part of his journey with sobriety is noting all the time that like, no, I'm getting pretty out of control on on this, you know, not drugs, but workaholism or whatever. Whatever's replacing that. Sure. So... Anyway, I thought that was interesting. All right, back to the mid-1970s. A now slightly cocaine-addled Elton John is a huge superstar, but his life just isn't feeling good. He and John Reed have broken up in 1975. In 1976, Elton came out as bisexual in a Rolling Stone interview. 
Just pretty brave. It's pretty brave, but it in came up... In the mid-70s. Up, it came up in kind of an ugly way. The reporter asked Elton about some stuff that David Bowie had reportedly said. Ah. So Bowie at one point called Elton John, quote, the Liberace, the token queen of rock. And then he told, like, he Playboy interviewed David Bowie and asked him about that. And he was like... You know, yeah, I said that. And he said, I consider myself responsible for a whole new school of pretensions. They know who they are. Don't you, Elton? Oh. And like, I had no idea that, because I always think of David you Bowie as... You need to calm as, down, David Bowie. Yeah, I didn't know that he was, like, gay-baiting Elton John in the press. Because he, he was the flamboyant, bisexual, like, Ziggy Stardust. He was the sexual time. revolutionary. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, apparently... Apparently he was kind of uh, kind of shitty to Elton John, and so you know then you've got the Rolling Stone interview with Elton John after he's played Madison hey, Square Garden. Let's talk about how he was shitty to you and make you feel shitty about it again. Yeah, so Elton is actually considering retiring from music at this point. Like he he's just burned out. I think he's again been working nonstop for six or seven years. Wow, touring a lot, recording constantly, churning out like a couple albums a year, basically. And so he said, you know, I feel really strange at this particular point in time. I always do things by instinct, and I just know it's time to cool it. I mean, who wants to be a 45-year-old entertainer in Las Vegas like Elvis, who <gasps> died the next year? Hmm. So he he goes on to say, like, he isn't sure what he wants. Quote, I'm just going through a stage where any sign of affection would be welcome on a sexual level. I'd rather fall in love with a woman eventually, because I think a woman probably lasts much longer than a man. But I really don't know. I've never talked about this before. Ha ha. But I'm not going to turn off the tape. I haven't met anybody that I would like to settle down with of either sex. And the reporter's like, so you're bisexual? And Elton John says, there's nothing wrong with going to bed with somebody of your own sex. I think everybody's bisexual to a certain degree. I don't think it's just me. It's not a bad thing to be. I think you're bisexual. I think everybody is. So anyway, cat's out of the bag-ish. All of his friends... Like, to be clear, see him as a gay man. Like, right. David Bowie sees him as a gay Like, everyone in his life is like, okay, Elton, you're you're bisexual. Okay. But being a gay man in the 1970s is oh. not something you talked about. It was no. a whole lot easier. Yeah. Or not easier. None of it's easy. Coming out isn't sure. easy at all. But no, it's a, it's it a was little a, bit more acceptable to be yeah. bi as opposed to, I'm a full-on queen yeah yeah i guess certainly in elton john's mind that must be how it isn't felt. it funny how far we've come and we haven't come very far at all you mean as a society yeah well. as a society all right elton john did slow down his his work after this period he <laughs> dropped back to only releasing an album a year or so i mean um, that is still a incredible pace yeah he also kind of branched out and was working with other songwriters and not just Bernie Taupin, who I gather was going through a divorce. Like there was a real dip in the quality of Elton John's music in this time. And I, I saw some, some of that was attributed to the fact that Bernie Taupin was just writing these like maudlin breakup songs. Aww. And again, it had to be weird because, you know, in the Rolling Stone interview in 76, like it's all about like how lonely he is in his personal life and how he would like to find someone. And what isn't spoke what what isn't said in that interview is that he's like fresh out of breaking up with John Reed with a long term relationship, yeah, yeah. Which I think I really think it was their drug addictions that 
made that untenable. I'm not sure though, but I haven't really seen that written up. Okay. It was not a good period in his career. And I gather also he's a pretty competitive guy. So seeing record sales drop off, like that hit him where it hurt. So by 1983, Bernie's through his divorce. <laughs> they partner back up. Okay, Bernie. Bernie's back on board. Bernie's back on board. Great. All the way, no longer distracted by, by Tiny Dancer leaving him or whatever. Recovered. So they co-write the album Too Low for Zero. Which, ah, I remember that one. Yes, it's like his comeback album. And it is also where Elton John meets a German sound engineer named Renata Blauel. So they spend like a year and a half, you know, like I think in the studio, she just found him incredibly funny. So they got to be really good friends. And then they started dating. And, you know, he was introducing her as his girlfriend. And then they get to Sydney, Australia while they're on tour. She's now part of his inner circle, obviously. And they're dining on curry in a restaurant and Elton John pops the question. What? She's like, hell yeah, let's get married. Sure. Not sure if I mentioned that Elton John has an addictive personality that turns everything into like... Hyperdrive. Level 11. Yeah. So here we go. Oh. One week later, they get married on Valentine's One Day. One week later? 1984. In the middle of his tour, his tour manager is put in charge of throwing him a wedding on a week's notice. Like, ah, oh. okay. It was a big to-do. Let's put it that way, as you would expect for Elton John. Olivia Newton-John. Uh, there's, there's no going small. No. Olivia Newton-John and John McEnroe were there. His best man was John Reed, his no. ex-boyfriend no. and current manager. No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, that doesn't even capture how bonkers this whole thing was because... Elton John also had a boyfriend at the time named Gary Clark, and Gary was sent out to go dress shopping with Renata for the wedding. Oh. And, like, apparently during the wedding, Gary was, like, up, because they're in some old church, he's up on, like, an upper level, just, like, staring down at this happening with, like, just his gut clenched, like, he can't believe. (laughs) Kids, the early 80s were a weird time. Yeah. Elton's tour manager, Harley Medcalf, pulled this whole thing off. They shipped in oysters from New Zealand. They had lobster, prawns, scallops, salmon, lamb, (laughs) crab, venison, beef, veal, quail, chicken, pork, turkey, ham, and trout. I mean, the menu here is... This wedding is just like meat sweats. It's meat sweats and fine French wine to wash it down with. (laughs) Um, Like vintage. I mean, they spent... Did shameless amounts of money on on this on a meat feast on a meat feast with wow. with very very expensive French wine. Medcalf would later make the incredibly understated observation of the wedding: "quote It was unexpected." Oh, <laughs> coked out gay super celebrity Elton John told the press, "I simply want to be a family man, and I'm not getting any younger." I'm imagining that's the tone that he was. <laughs> you have to do it in a British accent. Charles. Not getting any younger. Poor sweet Renata said, he's the nicest guy I've ever met. I've heard all sorts of stories about Elton and that he's supposed to be bisexual, but that doesn't worry me. Oh, poor it should sweet worry you. Renata, yeah. Oh, poor girl. Okay, so Rod Stewart telegraphs from England with what could have been a congratulatory message, but instead it read, you may be still standing, but we're all on the fucking floor. <laughs> what? Everyone... 
thought he was gay. Everyone. And now he's married. And now he's marrying... Poor oh, sweet Renata. Poor sweet Renata, who genuinely, like, she could have written a trashy tell-all. Like, she could have done all kinds of things. And she didn't did do any of that. Australian comedian Barry Humphreys, who performs as Dame Edna, was sure. in attendance and said of the day, It was in a beautiful old church in Sydney. Elton seemed happy. Halfway through the ceremony, the minister was saying a prayer, and behind him, a cockroach crawled up the wall. I don't know if it was a good or bad omen. Oh, just, Dame Edna. Just, uh, not long after, a Daily Express reporter asked Elton John how Renata was acclimating to her new life. He said, I've got to be the one who helps her and eases her into things. She is not used to the razzmatazz. The which... razzmatazz. Okay, so biographer Leslie And we Ann... thought only Bernie Toppin had the words <laughs> razzmatazz. So, uh, yeah, biographer... Leslie Ann Jones, who wrote Bohemian Rhapsody and Mercury, an intimate biography of Freddie Mercury, said, You would notice how affectionate and caring he was when they came into an event or a party. He would be quite deferential to her and sweet. I think we all fell for it for a bit. Like, it does. I mean, there was genuine warmth between them, but, you know, some things are not meant to be. Yeah. And trying to fit in the box that you're never meant to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and apparently, like, you know, he's still a touring musician, and, like, on the road, he would hook up with men, like... Oh, no. Yeah, which, you know, is no worse than, you know, if it it had been heterosexual hookups. Um, it's just to point out that, like... He's in a box he doesn't Poor Renata. In. Yeah. 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 The marriage lasted four years, during which time, yeah, Elton continued hooking up. The year that they divorced, Elton... So, I think that Elton sort of pretty quickly understood that he had made a mistake and like genuinely felt remorse for what he was doing to his wife. Not just the cheating on her, but just that he could not be the person that she deserved to have. Like he's just not that person. He's not living an authentic life. Right. Uh, So the year that they divorced, he threw her a $44,000 birthday party. Whoa. Which I assume is again driven by just... I've done something terrible to you and what can I do to make it right? And there's there's nothing. I mean, yeah. there's nothing. You were a coked out superstar looking for something. And Okay. So details of their divorce settlement were private and the reporting, I mean, it was all over the place. So she either got $6 million or $45 million <laughs> for her trouble. I don't know. Whoa. Plus a $600,000 cottage in Surrey that Alton bought for her. Her neighbors in that community, she's since moved back to Germany, but her neighbors in that community said that she was really cool, but they were super careful never to talk about Elton John near her because she was just like sort of incandescent with anger and hurt over his deception. They didn't speak for a couple of decades. Wow. After the divorce. It sounds like on on the balance, all super bad, but she was financially provided for. He didn't like pull any kind of dick moves on her. Only, only that time he married her. Only, well, yeah. Besides the original Beside, dick move, that's yeah. There's like an original sin here, and it really does seem like afterwards he he has been motivated He's by to account for that great guilt over this. Sure. Yeah. So Elton John later told the Sydney Morning Herald, "A drug addict thinks like this. I've had enough boyfriends, and that's not made me happy. So I'll have a wife, and that will change everything." 
And I loved Renata. She's a great girl. I really, really loved her. But, you know, it was one of the things I regret most in my life, hurting her. Mm. So in a 2008 remembrance of the, the wedding there in Sydney, the Daily Australian wrote, It was Valentine's Day. And Elton John was making one last attempt at being heterosexual, which is, yeah, it was just not a pretty episode. And it really does seem to be one of the, one of the things that he carries most in his life with regret. It was just his treatment of her, but it was also still a few years before he was going to give up drugs, which were definitely not helping him make good decisions. His addiction was so bad and he was so just looped from it that he said at one point he called down to the front desk of a hotel he was staying at to complain that it was too windy outside and make them stop it. Oh, you poor customer service people at the hotel. <laughs> like, I don't even know how you have that conversation. I'm I can't sure stop the wind, man. I bet they Tried. promised they'd work on it or something. I, I don't know what you tell the coked out rock star upstairs. About the wind. Sir Elton, that is not indicative of the way that we do business, and we're going to get on that wind situation immediately. We had no idea that it was bothering you, sir. Lord. (laughs) He said that his... Not all drugs are good. Uh, He said that his last two weeks of cocaine use, he was just shut inside his house. He wouldn't see anyone, and he was just snorting coke. Like I read that at one point... He was doing a line of coke like every four minutes. Whoa. That was, yeah. I mean, it's weird that That's his, some hardcore he doesn't have a hole burned in his nose like several Stevie other of Nicks. our. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, had started using cocaine because he was really shy and he had this very public life. And by the end of it, like cocaine had sealed him off entirely from the world. And I'm pretty like reading between the lines, it seems like. He was pretty suicidal at this point, too, Mm. when he got clean. He was dealing with personal guilt, not only about Renata, but from his lack of reaction to the AIDS crisis. So when Ryan White died, I think he was in Indianapolis with the family when Ryan White died in 1990. He went through a period of self-reflection that culminated in his checking into a Chicago hospital for rehabilitation. He said of White's death, It got me to realize how out of whack my life was. Because I was just in and out of a drug-fueled haze in the 80s. I did nothing to help people with AIDS. I was a gay man who really sat on the sidelines. So in 93, now sober, Elton meets David Furnish, a Canadian advertising executive who was living in London. And they've been together ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Long, long time. And apparently David Furnish routinely appears on best-dressed men's lists in London. Like no, he's, he's, he's dapper. Yeah, dapper. Dapper He's film. got some razzmatazz. <laughs> he does. When England legalized civil partnerships in 2005, they were among the first couples to sign up at the Windsor Guildhall, where Charles Charles and Camilla had had their civil ceremony just a few months earlier. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. They have two sons born through a surrogate in California. They are Zachary Jackson Levon Furnish John. Uh, he was born in December of 2010. And Elijah Joseph Daniel Furnish John was born in January of 2013. Their middle names are after Levon and Daniel. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh-huh. wow. I know. It's lovely. When same-sex marriage became legal in England and Wales in 2014, they converted their civil partnership to a marriage. Fantastic. All right. In 2017, as Australia was considering whether to legalize gay marriage, Elton John had a series of shows in the country, and he, of course, had gotten married there we'll remember in old sydney 
So he posted a picture of his 2014 nuptials with David to Instagram and wrote, I'm so excited to be back in Australia for a series of shows. Many years ago, I chose Australia for my wedding to a wonderful woman for whom I have so much love and admiration. I wanted more than anything to be a good husband, but I denied who I really was, which caused my wife sadness and caused me huge guilt and regret. To be worthy of someone's love, you have to be brave enough and clear-eyed enough to be honest with yourself and your partner. Almost 24 years ago, I met the person with whom I could be fully myself. When we married in 2014, it felt like that fact was accepted by the world. For David and I, being able to openly love and commit to one another, and for that to be recognized and celebrated, is what makes life truly worth living. That acceptance and support makes us want to be as kind, responsible, and productive members of society, as well as the best parents that we can be. I love Australia. I love its spirit, its lack of pretense, its passion. I hope it can embrace the honesty and courage that seeks gay marriage as an expression not of desire, but of love. According to Elton, he did finally make amends to Renata in the mid-2000s. And I'm not clear whether that was like a phone call or in person, but he said when they finally reconnected, we laughed and we cried. We're adults, but I do regret having hurt her. She was the classiest woman I've ever met, but it wasn't meant to be. I was living a lie. Australia did, of course, legalize same-sex marriage. Go Elton John! You're crying. I'm crying. That I'm, was... I'm struggling not to cry. Elton John today is 72 years young, and he is like one year into a three-year global farewell it's tour. It's incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> Obviously, Rocket Man just came out, and I think our plan on our on our off week is to go and see that. We have to go to the movies, yeah. Um, oh. You know, is he actually going to retire at the end of this tour? It is hard to Who see, knows? but... It's all mystery. You know, go live your best life, Elton John. It's your trashy divorce. It's your trashy divorce. <laughs> Elton John and sweet Renata. That yeah. was a good story. Yeah. I didn't cry. I, I did. I know. I saw it. Thank you for the tears. That was a hell of a story. Uh, you're welcome. Our deep apologies to a poor German sound engineer who got, was just a little too optimistic, I think. It's a... They both deserved a kind of love they could not deliver to one another. Be who you are. Love is love is love. And we're going to come back with somebody who is way into that. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. Yep. We will resume with Elizabeth Gilbert's garden party. Uh, okay, back in a few. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Alicia, Hi. you are covering one of your very favorite creatives I in am. life yes, today. I am. Today, mm -hmm. I have prepared for you mm -hmm. a little story that I like to call Elizabeth Gilbert's Garden Party. <laughs> in homage to one of the most comforting lines, I think, in any song found in Ricky Nelson's Garden Party, you can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself. Yeah. It's a Great line. It's a great line. Also 1972. Okay. Today I'm talking about a lady who really does get that message. She's the bringer of light and joy. 
She has faced fear bravely. She's honest with herself. She's been through a journey and she gives us all a torch as that light bringer, I think, to show us how to do it. Today is Elizabeth Gilbert Day on Trashy Divorces. <laughs> Maybe you know of her when she hit massive critical success with her bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love, in 2006. Maybe Eat, Pray, Love inspired you, esteemed listener, like so many others, to get out your coffee can and plan an adventure and follow your journey and bring, damn it, I'm going to do this. Podcast, no tears. Oh, sure. You're going to, yeah, it's Elizabeth <laughs> Gilbert. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. You're going to, maybe she's inspired you, right? To bring some light into your own life. Maybe you never read Eat, Pray, Love and I, I've, don't I've, know or care who Liz Gilbert is. I've tried to read it two or three times. I've never been able to get very far into it. I just lose sight. But Big Magic was great. Big Magic is amazing. Yeah. Whatever your feelings about Eat, Pray, Love, I welcome you to stick with me for a little while here for a story of love and hope and truth and fully embracing the message of pleasing yourself. So like Elizabeth, I'm a teacher too. And the things that make teachers amazing, they find the value in every single human soul. That's the contract you make when you're a teacher. And I'm pretty good at what I do, but if you want a master class in teaching, you need look no further than Elizabeth Gilbert. Goddess, I love this story. Are you ready? Yes. So let's go ahead and shuffle out the signs. Elizabeth's birthday is July 18th, 1969. She is a Cancer, which is perfectly lovely. The star planet of Cancer is the moon. And with that, changing with the tide. Emotions are a big deal. They know how to love one way, and that is with hearts wide open. Cancers feel very deeply. They are tenderhearted. They are some of the kind, they're the kindest of all the signs. But when the tides come in, you don't want to cross them because they're that balance. They're the moon. They're introverted and extroverted. They're the give and take. It's a great sign. Shout out to all my crabs out there in the world. Phrasing. But this week, astrology is not as exciting as the new thing I'm throwing out on y'all. Let's talk about some numerology, friends. Ha ha. So I need to come up with numerology now. Numerology is taking your birthday, birth month, and birth year and adding those numbers together where you keep adding them to get a consolidated number together. Sure, sure. This number is akin to your astrological sign, and that determined result after you do all the math is your life path number. Our friend Liz Gilbert is a five, which is amazing. So let's talk about the flexible fives. How many How many life path numbers are there? There's definitely one to nine. You can have a life path 11, a life path 22, which is a master builder. Life path 22s are rare and amazing. And I actually encountered one this week. Liz, I'm coming for you. Okay. So, so there are as many as as 11 life paths. That's kind of akin to astrology. Seems very limited. Let's talk about our flexible fives. (laughs) Our flexible fives are adventurers. They love variety. There are billions of humans. Don't yuck my yum. It's Pride Month. Pride Month. We're going to support each other. Pride Month. Don't don't yuck my yum on (laughs) us. All right. Please continue. Okay. Flexible fives. Love variety. Anything new is exciting. They're always looking for the next thing. Travel, people, experiences. The war cry of a flexible five is freedom. 
No road is needed. Where we're going, we don't need roads. They love to explore. They're going to go ahead and make a new road. Flexible fives normally find a career in which they are, in fact, flexible. No nine to five thing is going to work for them. Not to say they're not hard workers. It's just routine is a drag. This is a life built for adventure and trailblazing. And Liz does it all. As a girl. Her childhood. She grows up on a Christmas tree farm. What? In small town northwestern Connecticut. Which sounds idyllic, right? It really does. It's yeah. a Christmas tree farm. But it's also a working farm. Goats, chickens, the whole oh, nine. Cool. With her mom and her dad and her sister. Who have real jobs. Not that having a farm isn't a real job, but they're working as well as building this life on the farm. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth says her parents weren't like, hey, here's your permission slip to go be spiritual or creative. But instead, they fashioned the life that they wanted their children to see. They're hardworking. They're industrious. And what they were making out of that piece of land, I'm quoting her here, was their spiritual and creative endeavor. And the really wonderful thing is it made her grow up with a sense of vocation. There are people who decided to create a life they wanted that didn't necessarily make any sense to anyone else for no reason more than it brought them the pleasure and satisfaction and purpose. Yeah, that's what... It's a hell of a way to raise your kids. It is. It's a hell of a way to live your life. Sure is. I mean, that's... solid. A plus. A plus. So Elizabeth grows up wanting to be a writer. So on that Christmas tree farm, there's not a television, no record player, but you know what there were a lot of? Love? My f love. I'm certain love, but books. Books. Books and books and books and books. And being a writer is the only thing Elizabeth ever wants to do. Handy. She writes throughout her childhood, her adolescence. As a teenager, she is sending out her stories to the New Yorker. Rejected. <laughs> ah, okay. But good. writes. And cool. she does the work. And the work is the thing that she loves so much, it doesn't matter if she fails. Sure. That is her home. That is what she's always going to return to is that process of work. She loves it more than her. Okay. I have to say, like, as a writer, my rejections have been via email just because of when I came of age. But I love the idea, like Stephen King talks about, he has got this like Gerald. stack of, yeah. you know, you got to pin him up on the wall. You got to, you got to be able to wallpaper your place with a rejection note. And it's not the same with email. So Elizabeth is still continuing to write. She does attend NYU. And in 1991, she graduates with her Bachelor of Arts in Political Science. And she's hustling. She is still writing because that's the. That's her thing. That's the love of her life. But in the meantime, right, got to pay those bills. She works as a cook, a bartender, a diner waitress, but she's writing. It's the only thing she's ever wanted to do. It's the only thing she's interested in. It's the only thing she's good at. And she is a fucking hard worker. She says it's a curse. Uh, I've made other stuff in my life messy, but writing is straight and narrow. So from the time of 18, she's sending out stories for publication. Six years of rejection letters. But it's sort of charming. She takes a long view. As long as I'm published before I'm dead, I am a successful writer. And that is how you do it. And that's how you do it. So in her 20s, she leaves Connecticut. She heads on out to Wyoming. She's going to be a cowgirl, a ranch hand. She does these kind of manly things and goes on this personal quest. She's not a tomboy. She never was. But she's on a quest to make a man out of herself. 
She comes from this whole line of just tough people and hardworking and industrious and resilient. She's like, I'm not a tough person. I've always felt like the weakest link. I'm a crybaby. I'm sensitive. I'm emotional. I'm not pretty. And this like feeling of helplessness draws her out to the West and ranching, which she's not good at that at all either. She's definitely a woman in a very masculine, machismo kind of world. But she spends her 20s sort of solving that question of masculinity. She really likes men. Can you imagine what her, like, you know, her peers from NYU? What are you doing? You're a cowgirl You did what? (laughs) She really likes men. And she knows, like, not a lot of women do, but... She has all these uncles when she's growing up who are funny and charming and their attention is worth the world. Her happiest memories are now everybody's recovered, you know, and not drinking like they used to. But her happiest memories of childhood are sitting around with men. Everybody's drinking and telling stories. She looks at the women who are in the kitchen and taking care of everything. And she's like, that's not the place for me. Not alluring at all in Uh, Like she wanted to be with the men. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she's denying some buried feelings, trying to be one of the guys. It's disconnecting her. But that's okay because she's writing still. And writing what she knows from all of these experiences she's having. In 1993, Esquire does publish her short story Pilgrims under the headline, The Debut of an American Writer. She was the first unpublished short story writer to debut in Esquire since Norman Mailer. Huge deal. Huge deal. Yeah, I had heard heard that piece of her by, like, huge deal. So this leads to steady work as a journalist (laughs) for a variety of national magazines. Spin, GQ, New York Times Magazine, Allure, Real Simple, Travel and Leisure. She begins to make a career as a highly paid freelance writer. She's writing. She's Mm -hmm. getting published. It's Mm -hmm. great. Yeah. In 1997, her... GQ article, The Muse of the Coyote. What? I can't talk at all. It's a good thing we podcast then. In 1997, her GQ article, The Muse of the Coyote Ugly Saloon, is a memoir of her time as a bartender in the very first Coyote Ugly. This I did not know. Yeah, Table Dancing Bar. Yeah, I watched the movie like in the last year and was like, you know, that I thought that movie was going to suck. And it, it was actually, it had real charm. So it's based on one of based her short her stories. Story. The bar is located in the East Village of New York City. It was her short story was the basis of the feature film that came out in 2000, Coyote Ugly. She adapts her 1998 GQ article, The Last American Man, into a biography of the modern woodsman and naturalist Eustace Conway. She does a profile called The Ghost of Hank Williams III, published by GQ in 2000. She's included in the Best American Magazine writing in 2001. Her first book, a collection of short stories, receives the Pushcart Prize, was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award, followed by her novel, It's a Notable Book, in 2002, The Last American Man Comes Out, nominated for a National Book Award in nonfiction. Like, that has you up to 2002 with her writing. But there's a marriage that's Mm, happened as well. So in 1994... Elizabeth marries a man named Michael Cooper that she meets while actually working in the Coyote Ugly Saloon. Wow. Back all those days ago. There's a terrific piece. The the short story is amazing. It's in GQ about her time 
in this job. It's a delightful little read. I've linked it for you in the show notes. Cool. So she marries, 1994, early like her mom did, or early like 25. And imagine you're Elizabeth, and what an example you have to live up to when your mom is the example of everything good. She does it right. Devoted mother, devoted wife, and setting this example, and she, Elizabeth, really struggles inside because she's like, yeah, this is definitely not meant for me. Mm. I don't want this, whatever this is. I don't want kids. I can barely take care of myself. Like she's choosing to be a childless writer is not a decision feel she feels like the world's going to embrace. I think there may be a little stepping out in the marriage as well because of that whole swirl of unhappiness. None of it's good. Her first marriage collapses in 2002. For whatever reasons but there are. May I ask, mm-hmm. is everything copy? Everything is copy. Shit, you <laughs> don't, Nor- yeah, did, didn't bury the lead on that one. Okay. So for whatever reasons there are within a marriage that fails, when you're not in your authentic place, it has devastating consequences. And Liz says, I failed. Everything I'd built was done. I headed into a three-year depression so much. I didn't know how to take care of my own heart and fragileness. I could only collapse into the shame of that disappointment of the failure of that marriage. She tried medication, yoga, anything to help this. And she's a hard worker. Tell me what fixes this. Like She knows at the time she is a drowning person. She's wishing for someone to calm her and fix it. If anybody, like... Who's out there and there's an incident on a bathroom floor. You read about Neat Pray Love, but we've all had the bathroom floor incident. And it's, I love this because it's almost like Harry Potter and the secret diary in the Chamber of Secrets. But she's wishing there's someone there to fix it. And what if I were to write myself a letter of everything I wish someone would say to me? What does that voice of love sound like? So she writes and Love writes back. Like, love says, like, what do you need to hear? You're amazing and magical, and there's nothing you can do to lose my love. It's this almost like a universal mother. Like, go to bed, Liz. That's how you take care of yourself right now. Go to bed. Yeah. Um, You're doing great. You have permission to do whatever you want. Have kids. Don't have. Follow your path. I'm going to love you no matter what. She does follow her path. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in her quest, she gets this permission slip from love, as well as a $200,000 publisher's say, she, advance. She also got a big advance when she pitched the story. <laughs> After pitching the idea for this quest across the world to find herself. And she writes her own love letter in the form of the book we now know as Eat, Pray, Love. Sure. It's released in 2006. Book spends 199 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Like, that's incredible. It is raw and earnest and honest. And Elizabeth says she did write it to her friend Darcy. She says, never sit down to write anything until you know precisely who the one person you're speaking to is. That's how you write a narrative. That's very interesting. I think about somebody different when I'm writing my trashy divorce story Every single week. And sometimes they know about it. Sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. But there's always someone in mind. I have to hear the message I'm creating. Her friend Darcy 
lives in Brooklyn. She's like this hipster Christian, punk rocker, skeptical, complicated. And she and Elizabeth spend a lot of time talking about the issues that were in Eat, Pray, Love. So in essence, because she is speaking to someone, there's that intimacy of natural conversation. Eat, Pray, Love is a bestseller. It begins to get her way more noticed than the notice she's had before. And during the journey of living the experience that was Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth meets Jose Nunez in Bali. We know him as Felipe from Eat, Pray, Love. And the world is rooting for these two crazy kids oh, sure. who fall in love after this magical journey of finding yourself. They marry in 2007. I recall in real time, it was just a hell of a story. It's a hell of a story. They live in Frenchtown, New Jersey. They open and run an import store called Two Buttons. And she's still writing. She writes a book called Committed, which comes out in 2010, which is not a success in the way that Eat, Pray, Love was. It does, however, provide an examination of the institution of marriage from several historical and modern perspectives, including those of people, particularly women, reluctant to marry. In the book, she's also writing about same-sex marriage and interracial marriage. And let's talk about what this thing of marriage looks like. She writes The Signature of All Things in 2013. Fiction, it's an amazing book, very well received. Big Magic comes out in 2015. Life is going along merrily. She is doing her thing. And one day in 2016, everything changes. What happened? So Elizabeth has a BFF, Rhea, Rhea Elias, who Elizabeth met many moons ago when her friends scheduled a haircut intervention for her. Rhea is a hairdresser in one of her careers. That's a thing because I know someone who periodically needs a haircut intervention. Haircut interventions are a thing. If you have a bad haircut, your friends really should help you out. And they did. They scheduled a haircut intervention with... Rhea. Rhea. And Elizabeth and Rhea become fast friends. Like they find a connection that is deeper than just a passing acquaintance. There's a soul connection there. And they are friends for decades. And Elizabeth goes through her E Pray Love Jersey BFF. Sure. And one day in 2016, a very happily married Elizabeth Gilbert gets a phone call. And Rhea has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And there's no cure for pancreatic cancer. Wow. And Liz gets this news and within a week, her entire world has changed. So I'm going to read from a post of hers from July of 2016. Kind of lay it out in stages for you here. I am separating from the man who many of you know as Felipe, the man whom I fell in love with at the end of the Eat, Pray, Love journey. He has been my dear companion for over 12 years, and they have been wonderful years. Our split is very amicable. Our reasons are very personal. At this time of transition, I hope you will respect our privacy. In my heart, I know that you will do so because I trust that you understand how this is a story that I am living, not a story I am telling. Hmm. So what's the story she's not telling? When Elizabeth gets the news about Rhea, her world turns upside down. And she comes to this moment where she realizes the most important person in her life is dying. And the bottom falls out from under her. 
her husband is the is it's shocking to her. Like, oh my God. And I'm gonna read another post in a minute that kind of clears this up, but she gets it and she knows that she's in love with Rhea and can't be married to her husband anymore because she's deeply in love with Rhea and she and, is, and there's a clock on that now. Unfortunately. There's a clock on that now and she's the love of my life and I have to I need it's that she says it's not like she's making a decision it is obeying a mandate. I need to be there to walk her to the river. Mm. So again, I'm going to let Elizabeth tell you in her own words in September of 2016 from one of her posts about her feelings cuz she's going to do a better job describing that than I ever could. This spring, I received news that would change my life forever. My best friend, Rhea Elias, was diagnosed with pancreatic and liver cancer, a disease for which there is no cure. In the moment I first learned of Rhea's diagnosis, a trapdoor opened at the bottom of my heart, a trapdoor I didn't even know was there, and my entire existence fell straight through that door. From that moment forward, everything became about her. I canceled everything in my life that could be canceled. I went straight to her side, where I have been ever since. Many of you already know who Ray Elias is to me. She is my best friend, yes, but it's always been bigger than that. She is my role model, my traveling companion, my most reliable source of light, my fortitude, my most trusted confidant. In short, she is my person. But something happened to my heart and mind in the days and weeks following Raya's diagnosis. Death or the prospect of death has a way of clearing away everything that is not real. And in that space of stark and utter realness, I was faced with this truth. I do not merely love Raya. I am in love with Raya. And I have no more time for denying that truth. The thought that someday sitting in a hospital room with her holding her hand and watching her slide away without ever having let her or myself know the extent of my true feelings for her. Well, that thought was unthinkable. Here's the thing about truth. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it. So that truth, once it came to my heart's attention, could not be ignored. But what to do with this potentially life-shattering truth? Now, let me tell you something I've learned from Rhea over the 15 years of our friendship. She is the most brave and honest person I know. And she has taught me more about courage and honesty than anyone I have ever met. Here is her mantra on truth, which I have heard her express so many times over the years in so many difficult situations. The truth has legs. It always stands. When everything else in the room is blown up or dissolved away, the only thing left standing will always be the truth. Since that's where you're going to end up anyway, you might as well just start there. So I did what Ray had taught me to do. I started there. I spoke my truth aloud. Like, how do you begin to comprehend and understand when your soul makes that cataclysmic shift? And the one thing that Elizabeth does not do in this post, that everybody is like, because at the end, She's like, I would request, please don't send us any cures. Like, oh, thank you. Thank you. We we know you care, but we've got this. B- 
because it's her kind of warning. And people thought she was going to be like, hey, don't judge me because I'm in love with a woman. And Elizabeth laughed. She's like, it never occurred to me that her gender would be the big thing about it. Just never crossed her mind. You love who you love who you love. It never occurred to her to discriminate in love on gender. The love of my life is diagnosed with terminal cancer. Like, how? Stand in the truth. Uh, <laughs> in June of 2017, Elizabeth and Rhea do celebrate a commitment ceremony with close family and friends. And Rhea fights like the person Elizabeth knows her to be. She does succumb to her cancer January 4th, 2018. And the journey of walking with Rhea to that river is profound. And Elizabeth Gilbert has been really open and honest, again, leading from a place of authenticity about this experience. There's a great moth podcast that she talks about Rhea's death and life, and it's just an audio experience to behold. So grief and love and those flexible fives. After Rhea's death, Elizabeth is now going to return to what she considers home. Her work. Writing, yeah. And her writing. And she begins the novel City of Girls. City of Girls has been in research for years and years and years and gets put off to live in love with Rhea. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth does return to work, begins writing City of Girls. It actually just was released early June, like two weeks ago. It's on my shelf. And we have next week off, so I'm going to be doing a little reading, and I'm excited about that. And Oprah has a great interview with Elizabeth Gilbert that came out, again, a few weeks ago. And she narrows the point, really, of City of Girls to this. And I think it's apropos for all of us. Uh, at some point in a woman's life, she gets tired of being ashamed all the time. And after that, she is free to become who she truly is. I don't think that's just women. Like, no, I, I think uh, I think that's a significant part of the coming out process for a gay she's person. Tired of, just the, yeah. I, I'm just, I am no longer accepting your judgment of me. Like I'm tired of being ashamed all the time. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to be who I am. Yep. Also, in this year, in March of this year, Elizabeth posted on Instagram that she is in a new relationship with a UK-born photographer. His name is Simon MacArthur, who was also a really good friend of Rhea's. Love is love is love is love. Lesbian, gay, trans, bi, queer, gender fluid, pan, asexual, demisexual. You don't need any kind of permission slip. Or if you really need one, I'm about to give it to you. Oh. I see you. I see your value and your worth and your hope and your love. And we're all part of this amazing community called the world. Welcome. You are doing great. You can claim your right to exist in it in whatever worthy or noble way you want to pursue. There are a million ways to be, and you, only you, get to make that call. You have permission to follow whatever life you want. Stubbornly love yourself and talk to yourself like you would a friend. Write yourself love letters and see if yourself answers. Believe in magic. And the big magic that you are. Follow your curiosity. Treat yourself gently in the meantime. And once you get to really loving yourself, then love who you want to love and let them love you back. Speak your truth aloud. This whole existence is so amazing and so fragile. Make those roads where there are none and hella ride the journey of your life because it's yours. Let your authentic little light bust through all the dark that wants to dim your candle. Hike your hike, 
tell all the haters they can go fuck right off with five little words. You need to calm down. <laughs> it's like Judd women always land on their feet. No, more than five. You need to calm down. <laughs> I can fix him? No. You need to calm down. And that's my trashy divorces arc of the goddess teacher bringer of light. That is Elizabeth Gilbert. She and my brain lives on a pile of a million halos. Mm -hmm. And I thank her so much for making me a better teacher, a better human, a better artist, a better writer, just better. Secret for me to you, when I feel like my light is dimmer out, I always find a random thing that I can fill with Elizabeth Gilbert. There's always a nugget in all of her work that is my soul bomb. So, esteemed listeners, if you need some soul bomb, might I recommend everyone's friend and moon sister, Elizabeth Gilbert. Big magic. One million halos. I would give her a trash can for the first divorce that turned into Eat, Pray, Love. Like, the first divorce was bad. Seems like. So, yes, you are correct. There's a little bit of trash can edge in the divorce. But let's talk about how you do it badly and then how you do it well. And authenticity and honoring the love that was there, even though it may have shifted and confronting that hurt and yourself in the meantime and giving us all a new way to act with like sheer bravado. Minimum trash cans on this. Like I'll go one and a half. That first divorce was. Yeah, it seems like there was some bad behavior. There was some bad behavior. Wishy-washy communication. Well, it was Elton not being able to admit to himself that. I'm not living in my authentic place. This isn't what I want. Sure. And until you work through that. So yeah, I'll go, I'll go one and a half. Okay. I think that's, yeah, I'd, I'd give her, I'd give her at least one for, yeah. But, but then, but then turning it into a $200,000 book advance and traveling the world and picking up a new guy. I mean, hey. She won that breakup. She won that breakup. I mean, but she found herself Mm -hmm. and got to the next point in her path where, God, the trap door fucking opens and you find yourself again. Yeah. It's all, it's evolution and recreating yourself and hiking your hike following your path to see where you're where we're going we don't need roads yep 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 i don't know just all the halos i love liz gilbert i cried less than i thought i would yeah tell me about your trash cans with elton john so how I've, many how many glitter I, trash cans you know does i get? again i think we i think because it's it was so long ago and the life that he has lived and you know, what he has come to represent. I mean, he stood up to Vladimir Putin on gay rights in Russia. Like, he, you know, like, Elton John has had quite the journey in his life. But I think what I've decided is that Elton John gets seven consecutive number one trash cans. (laughs) (laughs) Because he really... I I know he was out of control with drugs and he was lying to himself and he like I know all of that but he really did a terrible thing to this poor woman. Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. When he, you know he knows better, it, you do better. Yeah, he knows it. He he regrets it like like you know. But but that thing did happen and I I think seven consecutive number one trash cans is inadequate. It sounds perfect. It sounds like that's it. An adequate thing for uh performer and a creative that I really respect, um, who has certainly made his life meaningful. I mean, the Elton John AIDS Foundation has raised, I don't know, $400 million to... Huge. Yeah, yeah. like to help like the legal status of people with HIV to make sure they're not discriminated against in housing in the workplace. That, like, he's done great things with his life. And 
that should be applauded. So just want to, it's not, it's not a prejudiced seven consecutive number one trash cans. It's, uh, <laughs> I really like Elton John, but, but boy, he, he did a bad thing. <laughs> so today, two really interesting stories of love is love is love is love. And we hope y'all are having a happy pride. Happy pride. Out there. Lots of good links and references. Remember, we are taking next week off. Next week off. Thank God. We need a break. We re- well, we need to we need to get season three in order because well, it's that coming too. for you. That too. If you can't stand it next Sunday, where where are my favorite trashy divorces? Please again consider joining us over on Patreon there. It'll get you. It'll get you through the rough times. It'll give you your fix for when we come back to you on July 7th. July 7th. July 7th. Great. Next episode. In the meantime, enjoy your pride. Mm-hmm. I hope that our friend Double E is enjoying her rainbow tacos right now. Hell yeah. I am so jealous. I can't have a rainbow taco. We may need to do that on Sunday. Sounds good. Perfect. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you. Y'all are the best. We appreciate your support. Love is love is love. Love authentically. That's it. Stay in love. Stay in love. Y'all go have a great weekend. Big cheers. Talk to you in two weeks. Keep it glitter trashy, (laughs) y'all. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.